The scripture for this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, which can be found on page 1473 of the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Jenny. Today we're sort of taking a break from Ezekiel. I'm glad there's not cheers for that. That's fantastic. Um, most years on the Sunday closest to Martin Luther King Sunday, I preach on the gospel and justice and related to some facet. Um, in numerous years, I will discuss um, things that are perennial to, our, to questions about public justice relative to Christian faith. And um, this year, I'm going to talk about it a little bit different relative to the situation and times that we're in. Please understand that this is a pastoral message more than an expositional one, which means that I, I have to connect some things myself, which takes me a little bit further from the direct application of Scripture, but this cannot be done unless I do so. And so some of you are not going to like some things I say. Some of you probably for good reasons. Some of you not for, but I just encourage you to listen with grace and an open mind. And then, like we, feel like we used to say in the South, um, eating watermelon is about eating the watermelon and spitting out the seeds. Does that make sense? We all have to have our own discernment. Now, um, one of the things r that is important to recognize relative to justice is that part— justice is by nature what happens between people. It's giving others their due. That is what they deserve. As Christians, we understand that that is mainly rooted in other people's dignity as being made in the image of God. Does that make sense? And then additionally with other believers, our connection to them as spiritual family members and co-citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so justice is by nature rooted in our worldview or our understanding of what it means to be a human being, which is religious and spiritual by nature, which is that we are not just meat cabinets. We are image bearers of God, and therefore we have inherent dignity. God says in Genesis 9 that the reason why he affirmed a capital punishment for killing a human being was because the human being that was killed was made in the image and likeness of God. So as believers, one of the reasons we're against racism is no matter what race you are, your race is in the human race. You are a human being. God made all people from blood, and as a human being, you bear the image and likeness of God. That is the basis of your dignity. Now the reason we sometimes focus on questions of racism is not because— Different races are different relative to dignity, but because sometimes we don't afford everyone amid these subhuman differences the full dignity that they deserve as human beings. And sometimes we have to focus on certain contexts or certain relationships as they worked out in the politics or the inner social workings of our society. But it's not because we as Christians agree with any distinctions on value. We believe it because we do not accept distinctions of value within human beings. We, we exist in a time where everything is political. Everything is understood to be connected to whether or not we're good people relative to public. For example, my beard is political. Not just because it's terrible, but because um, everybody knows that masks are designed to fit on clean-shaven faces. They do not work if they're not on clean-shaven faces. That's why if you work at like a mold, re a mold removal company, you can't come to work if you're not clean-shaven. Masks don't work. They don't protect you. 
And if they were for protecting others, they wouldn't do that either. So, is being clean-shaven political? And the answer is, in this moment, for some people, yeah. Wearing a mask is political. Um, there, um, if you remember in some of the protests um, last year, there was a sign that people held a lot, that silence is violence. What does that mean, right? Now, it might be right, it might be wrong. That's not my point. It's a really good example of demonstrating that violence is part of constrained justice, right? If you engage in unjustified violence, that should be stopped by the state or by our public order together. It's not part of unconstrained justice, which is how I should just treat you, like me not being rude. Like you deserve for me not to be rude to you, right? But the state probably shouldn't adjudicate that, right? That's part of social pressure and interpersonal morality. That's unconstrained justice. It's too fine a level of justice for the state to adjudicate. Constrained justice is the area of justice where the state should get involved, like we should do something. Violence is one of those places where you should step in and something should be done to the person who is engaging in violence. So when you say, standing there and doing nothing, saying nothing, doing nothing, is violence, what are you saying? You're saying that you are an evil political actor within the realm of constrained justice, that justice should be done upon by the hand of someone with authority. Now listen, whether or not that sign is correct relative to racism in America, what it is saying is that in this country, at this time, in this human society, standing there and not making us words is political. Now just think about that. Before you think about whether or not that's correct, think about that. On the other side of the political aisle, right, there was, there was a time in, during the Trump administration where like, if you just didn't do what the president said, you're a bad person. Right? Like, you see that in both political parties that like, no, be, no, being on side is more important than calling balls and strikes. More important than the question of what's true, what really happened. None of those questions matter when people are politicized. Does that make sense? Now the problem is, is that <clears throat> to God, everything is spiritual, including our public lives. And so his message to the world is always wreathed in public implication. You see this all the way through the book of Ezekiel. What we believe is the nature of reality, that God exists. He is the only God. There are no other gods but him. And to stray from believing in him is idolatry. And because he doesn't just present himself as the all-powerful God, but as the fully just and good God— he calls us to move away from sin and towards righteousness. What is, what is sin? Sin is, right, it's that which God can adjudicate on the finest level, but the state can't. It is essentially unconstrained injustice, and it is always destructive. So idolatry is detestable, but it will always lead to sin, which is always destructive. And as sin grows, and as we commit ourselves to it more, and as we focus on it, as we don't want people to tell us what to do, and as our side, the side we're on that's doing that particular sin, is winning— Right? We, we keep setting up the rules of the game so we can keep winning. That produces injustice, which is always demoralizing. I'm not just intentionally trying to pick words that start with D, though there's a little of that since they're all four starting with D. But the, the point is there, what, what is, I mean demoralizing in the literal sense. It unmoralizes people. When, it, when, when there isn't justice, things aren't fair. They're not just. People don't deserve what they should, so they can't trust you. Right? Injustice is by nature the destruction of interpersonal trust whereby I do what I know is right and you're going to do what you know is right. And because of that, we can trust each other and we can live in what's called liberty or the ability for me to let you do what you should be responsible to do and you're going to let me do what I'm supposed to be responsible to do. And we all are, as image bearers, stewards who make our own choices about things. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be mature. And injustice— when it is perpetrated on people for long enough, they stop believing that they can live by those moral parameters. They're not going to get what they're due. They, they live in a junkyard. They don't live in a city. And the dogs, dogs bite dogs in junkyards, and that's just how you live. And if you talk to somebody who's lived in a dehumanizing or demoralizing or destructive or even under a detestable idolatry, what happens over time is their capacity to embrace and live out in deep character the moral attributes of God publicly in relationship to other people 
it leaks out of them or is never formed, and their capacity for it diminishes. And if injustice happens over time, Ezekiel says over and over and over again, it will ultimately—what happens is people will say, hey, what you're doing to me is unjust, which means you have two options if they're right. If you're doing something to someone else, it's unjust, and they say, what you're doing to me is unjust, you have two options. You can either say, you're right, I'm sorry, let me make what restitution I can, or shut up or I'll make you. Those are your two options. And that shut up I'll, or I will make you option is always has to be backed by forcing them to shut up, which is violence. Right? Ezekiel, all through this passage, God is imploring people to come to him. As he says, the most important thing you're going to find out is that I am the Lord. That is king. That is a political title. He's saying to all of humanity, including his own people, you don't live like I'm king. You have a temple. You worship. You have religious rights. You do all kinds of religious things. But what does not happen is that you wake up in the morning and you live like I'm the king. And that I'm a just king. And that I care about righteousness. And that idolatry will always lead to sin, which will always lead to injustice, which will always lead to violence publicly, amidst all people, through all human society. These all are linked together because these are all human phenomena. If human beings believe idolatrously, they will believe sin is okay, and they will justify it, and they will do it. And then when they do that, they will expand it and systematize it, and they will produce injustices. And when people say, you're hurting me, they won't want to do anything about it. They won't repent. They'll say, I will force you. They all go together. They can't come apart, which is why Everything is political in a way, and it's also why everything is spiritual. And so as Abraham Kuyper said, all of creation is claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by Christ. There is no middle ground. Right? Now, <clears throat> what that means is, is that when we live in a context where everything is political, what are we supposed to do as a church? Who are we supposed to be as the church? Right? Some churches get super political. Some churches say, we won't, we won't breathe a word of anything related to public life because it'll create division. Can, can the church do either of those things? Is one safer than the other? Should we, be too, should we be very spiritually conservative that we become Pharisees? Or should we become very spiritually liberal so that we can become Sadducees? G.K. Chesterton said the beauty and drama of orthodoxy, that is following the truth along the line, he says it's the same drama as somebody walking on the peak of a roof. That there is equal drama to falling off of the possibility of both sides, and yet the possibility that the walker could make it to the end. At the point, the sticking point of prudential truth. So the church <clears throat> of Jesus Christ, in a world in which everything is political, is political. But we speak our public truths. They are truths about the entire human race. They have implications for everything that happens around us. <clears throat> and yet, the church cannot be politicized. Because the politicization, the, the politics defining everything and judging everything, is itself an idolatry. An idolatry that leads to sin. Sin that leads to injustices, and injustices that lead to violence. It is an alternative religion that the human race falls into from time to time, when one or two generations has not faced its horrors. And we're a good hundred years or so. We're getting there. We're 80 years from the last time statism as a false religion and politics being everything destroyed the lives of hundreds of millions of people. So first we need to recognize that the church is political because it's spiritual. When we recognize the holistic message of Christ, the idea that we can say, we can come here to church and just preach the gospel of personal salvation, which should lead to personal godliness and personal ethics, we deceive ourselves. And it's not that those things shouldn't be primary. They must be primary, and they are primary to Jesus. The one who did not enter into political power and didn't mainly speak about political power and didn't— it, and didn't make much of political power. Like, the number of times he mentions the Roman government in all of the teachings that we have about Jesus is incredibly scant. And yet, everything that he said had public implications for how humans should live. Because you cannot have a biblical, Christ-centered spirituality that isn't 
well, what's the most baseline Christian ethic? Love. Love always has another. And what must you give others in love? Their due at least, which is that the minimum requirement is justice. By political in this context, I mean anything which concerns the polis. That's an ancient, that's a Greek word for the city, right? That's where the word politics comes from. We live in a city. We live together. We have a shared life together. Anything that connects to that is by definition political in that sense. And usually what that means is it determines two things. To what extent people should be constrained and forced to do what we think is right, i.e. justice. And to what extent should we not be forcing to people to do things, and they must exist as people who have an autonomous nature and an ability to associate among those they choose in the ways they choose, pursuing the good, which is liberty. And those two things, justice and liberty, adjudicated properly to human beings in the human condition, which is bearing God's image, but also fallen and broken in sin in the flesh, is the nature of politics. And Jesus has an enormous amount to say about justice and liberty and the fallen nature of human beings and the image of God and what we're capable of and what we must not do and how we must treat other people. Remember when Jesus says not one line, not one punctuation, the law will be put away until all of it is fulfilled. Remember the Torah is filled with a sacrificial system that shows people how they can be reconciled to God when they have sinned and turned against God so that they can receive personal salvation, forgiveness through repentance and faith. A means of atonement by which all can be reconciled to God. And pages and pages and pages of justice commandments adjudicating how people must live together in ways that have implications for today. Let me give you just one example, just so I can make some people mad if you're not mad yet. It's not really for that reason. I would never do that. Um, in the Old Testament, one of the things that everybody's entitled to is not a living, but they're entitled access to a living. The, the ability to have an, the opportunity to provide for your own material needs should not be blocked by the society in which you live. The way that's adjudicated is people have an ancestral right to a piece of land for agriculture, and every 50 years, it's all reset. Everything goes back to who originally owned it so that in every lifetime, people have an opportunity to go back to their land and have an opportunity to make a living for themselves. Right? Now, what would that mean for us? What's the most fundamental mechanism for people to make a living in a post-industrialized society? Right? I mean, I think it'd be something like education. Everybody having access to an education that has the capacity, if you utilize it, to put you in a place where you can make a living for yourself in the society in which you live, and you don't have to be dependent on anyone. Therefore, I think that's the right corollary. I'm pretty, now, I think there's other things related to it. Therefore, I, I consider school justice or educational justice in America to be similar to land justice in the Old Testament. It should be something I should be concerned about as a Christian relative to the material access to a living that everyone deserves in every society. Now, does that mean that I think as a pastor, I can tell everybody what the educational policy must be or what superintendent you should vote for? No. But I think I can declare the public truth of Christ, that he wants every person to have access to engaging in their human dignity of work towards something that can provide a right living for themselves. As Paul says in Timothy, the hardworking farmer should be the first to share in the benefits of the harvest. The same person who said, he who doesn't work shouldn't eat, is the same person who said, the person who works and takes in the harvest should be the first to share in its benefits. And these are fundamental principles of justice, and they have, justice, and they have public implications, and yes, we have to figure out prudentially what they are, but these are spiritual truths. Remember, every law, every administration, every dollar spent in government or any of these sorts of things comes from a belief about what's moral. There is no law that is not based on at least one, usually many different moral truths that are assumed. And therefore, all government is culture. And all culture is rooted in beliefs about meaning and morality. And all beliefs about meaning, meaning and morality are religious. They are spiritual. They are metaphysical in nature. And Jesus displays to the earth a meaning, a morality, a worldview, a philosophy, a metaphysics, a truth— by which all these things must be built if they're to be non-idolatrous, redemptive relative to sin, undoing relative to injustice, and restraining relative to violence. 
you can see this in them. Um, in the, in, uh, as you work through Scripture, especially related to Jesus, right? Think about this. You might say, well, Nick, I don't think that we should be overtly political. That's fine. And I actually agree with you about that. But here's, here's one of the things. When Jesus was being himself, the political people thought he was political. Do you understand? Right? One of the things Jesus says is, if you are like me, you're going to have trouble with the state. <laughs> he says that. You're going to have trouble with the state. You're going to get persecuted. That persecution is mostly going to come from the state. And the reason for that is, is that when you don't think you're being political, you are saying things that have broad implications for all of human society and life. In so doing, you are judging the injustice that is, that is existing among people. When you do that, you are a thorn in the side. You are a detriment to those who wish to perpetuate, perpetuate injustice, encourage sin, hold people back with violence, and lead people into an ever-growing idolatry. And if you do that, whether or not you want to think you're political, you will be thought political, and you will be murdered as political. I mean, what was the pretense to murder Jesus? He was killed as a political prisoner. His, his cousin, John the Baptist, all he said was that the king had married somebody it was immoral for him to marry. And he couldn't do that under Jewish law. And it was a bad example to all of Israel. And it was unlawful for him to do it. He was, he was living like he was above the law. And that was wrong. Well, that's easy to fix. You just behead that guy. Right? Is saying that's immoral for you to do. Is that political? Well, when, the, when you're talking to the king, it is. Right? But it's, it's not in a way, right? Like in one way, it's not. The king's a man. That action is immoral. He has no right to do it. That should be set. And yet, you can't do that without stepping into the dung heap of politics. You see, friends, th this idea that like we could be a Bible-believing church and we could believe in the gospel and we could preach the gospel of the cross and we could encourage people to be saved and that'll be fantastic. And we don't have to wade in any of this political stuff. That's just not ever going to work. It's not true. It's not the whole message. I mean, think about this. Jesus— said at the very beginning, when, when the Word created human beings, he said to human beings, here's your main job. Take dominion. What does that mean? There's only two possible meanings. Either as a right authority, use your power to organize things for the good and the creative so as to bring out what God has done as Lord and King in creation. Or it means, take dominion, that is dominate and destroy for your own purposes and will that which is in front of you. It's certainly not the second. God didn't create the world and say, this creation is very good. Now, humans, go and destroy it. That's not what dominion means. I don't care what people say when they read that word and they like start shivering with anger because they have assumptions that they bring to the Bible that are totally false. That word means act like God just acted in the seven days preceding this. Go and take dominion. That is Use authority in a public, global, and environmental sense to bring the best out of the world. That is the command God gave the human race. That is what most of us do from Monday to Friday. That's what most of us must do, and it's what we should do, and it's what we get to do. We make humans and godly offspring, and we take dominion in the world, and we do it in a thousand different ways, or a billion different ways. And that's what we're called to do, and that's all— Dominion-taking, that's an intentionally political category. And Jesus, when he preached the gospel, he did preach repentance and faith. But why did he say, repent and believe the gospel? He said, be personally saved. Receive God's forgiveness for your sins. Trust that his death and resurrection, Christ that was coming, was going to pay for their sins and that they could be made one with God and changed as a human being. Why did he say, you should do that right now? He said, because the kingdom of God is near kingdom. And he is the Christ. Political category, kingdom. Christ, that is the atoning one that would, that would bring like a certain kind of revolution and undo the injustice of the world and bring in, push out the idolatry so that God would be king. Alleviate sin and bring people to a chosen liberty-filled goodness. To adjudicate against as Lord that which is unjust, and to put aside forever violent men and women who would destroy the lives of others. He is the Christ. And he does come first peacefully to invite all idolaters, all sinners, all perpetrators of injustice, which is all of us, and violence 
to repent, to not resist the king when he comes, to not resist the kingdom, to become a citizen of heaven, all political categories, that we would be saved and that all creation would be redeemed and that God would ultimately be king and that would be good for all. Matthew 5, 13, he says, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is not mainly about our justification and people accepting Jesus, but he's preaching a long, multi-chapter understanding of what it means to live justly in the world as though you are a citizen already of the kingdom of God, willing to live differently than the world around you, such as that you'll be persecuted, willing to recognize that blessedness comes through mercy and poverty of spirit, and mourning with those who mourn, because you're deeply invested in the world as it is, taking dominion in the world as it is, is broken. And so you're entering in all that like God's emissary for his kingdom. And so you are, he says, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Right? Salt is the preservative from corruption. We are to be dispersed among the world. The main idea of salt there is probably not flavor. Right? Salt works by bringing out the flavor that's already there. You could work with that metaphor enough, but that's not mainly what salt did in, in the ancient world. It mainly preserved things so that you could eat something you, you, you slaughtered five months ago now, in the middle of the winter. It's mainly what salt was for. And he's saying that corruption rolls in the earth. It increases. Injustice feeds on injustice, which feeds on violence. And violent men take control of the world. And something has to say, I won't do that. I won't give that order. I won't, I won't, I won't start that lawsuit because it's not right. Like you, that's a misuse of my power. It's a wrong use of my body. It's a misuse of my education. It's not what I'm supposed to do. You say it's justice, but I have to respect the liberty of that other person. And without a group of people dispersed among the earth that are the salt of that earth, it doesn't work. I mean, you've, I don't know if you ever had—people used to say this. When there was somebody would do something that was kind of like uncommonly good, when they didn't seem to have anything to gain for it, and they just kind of lived like that, you have to, they'd say, that person's the salt of the earth. You ever heard that saying? That's literally what it means. They're the salt of the earth. They, they preserve us from falling into more discord. And we are—we, the, the church, we are to be those people. That's not primarily a salvational metaphor in the, in the gospel of the cross, get saved sense, but a broader salvational metaphor about the kingdom coming to bear in the world that would naturally corrupt under the curse, but has the redeeming influence of regenerate people being led by the Spirit who are willing to pay any cost to do what's right, because at, at the sticking point, they will not be idolaters. Even if the system has. So let me give you a couple examples of this, of like, quote, being political as a church, right? Um, usually when we hear there's thousands of churches in America, the government has said in some laws you might not even know about what the church can and can't say. About when we hear several thousand churches in America say stuff the church isn't allowed to say to push back on those laws because the church can say whatever the church thinks the church should say. And every time I do that or somebody else does that, we can be arrested. The church can lose its 5013C status, but people do it anyway. Because establishing the right of conscience in the church to preach its gospel is fundamental. Sending missionaries to closed countries is a political action. Do you realize that? If a country says, the gospel has no place here, Christ can't be known here, for us to say, I'm sorry you feel that way, but Jesus said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You actually don't have the authority. You're operating outside of your human authority that you have to say that Christ can't be known in your country, and we will send people. And there are people, our church pays, tens of thousands of dollars. We support them in countries where their governments say they're not allowed to be to explicitly try to show people the truth of the gospel and lead them to become his disciples and for them to be saved. We do that. We don't apologize for it. And it's a political action. Do you understand that? It's a political action. Third is redressing the courts. When, when, when I encourage the elder board to sue the county in the state supreme court to keep our schools open last year, It wasn't because I believed the state was telling me we couldn't love Jesus. It was a set of implications I believed about justice, that it was unjust to send kids home to receive digital education they weren't well prepared for that would be especially counterproductive to minority kids. Our school had just become a voucher school. We just invited a bunch of kids from poor economic classes, and then we're like, okay, now go home and watch a computer. I'm sure your education will be fine. And we believe that was 
that was unjust. And so we sued the, the state. I never thought I would do that as a pastor. I never thought I'd be put in the position to do that as a pastor. And our elders, when we debated this, were like, should we be this political? Isn't this political? Shouldn't we just obey the government? Or do we want to stick our necks out there and be that church that's political? I'm like, and my argument then was, when politics is everything, if we aren't willing to be thought political, then spirituality is nothing. At what point do we reach our sticking point? Right? Um, seeing before condemning is a good example. I, I know a pastor who was really upset about gender ideology in the school, and I believe with many Christians that the, open, the, the Welcoming Schools initiative that was done in Madison was an anti-bullying campaign that became an adult-led bullying campaign. And the faster we get rid of it, in a way that is very welcoming towards kids that personally choose and are not manipulated into or led to identify as LGBT students, I think everybody should be treated with kindness in our schools, okay? I'm not for reversing back to another kind of bullying or something. I just think adults and kids should not be bullying each other. Whether it is the core belief of a certain sexual identity, or it's the core belief that they are created by Jesus and belong to him and should not be idolaters. And we're going to have to learn to live together, and the public school, because it's public, should be able to accommodate that. And it's going to take some people with a lot of guts in public life to do that, which is why Christians have to be involved in public life and have guts, right? But this pastor went to the school where he knew this was happening. He went to—he served in a classroom where he knew it would happen, and he served that classroom for a couple of months. And then he saw some of that stuff happening. He thought it was super problematic. He thought it was deceptive and misleading for children. It was clearly confusing and harming the children psychologically. But he was also helping kids read, trying to tell the teacher he was on her side. It's difficult to teach in the classroom. So that he wouldn't just like read a story and see an email and just get angry and then just go off the cuff and really just focus on how he felt and what he needed to do. Because our enemies are human beings and we have to love our enemies. And so if I'm going to fight something publicly because I believe it's idolatrous, sinful, unjust, and ultimately violent, the kind of pressure being put on kids in schools I would classify as much more violence than silence. But the people I would count my enemies on this issue are human beings. I am required to love them. I cannot bear false testimony against my neighbor or my enemy. And I have to do my resisting the way Jesus would. And this pastor did that, and, and he still advocated in the school for what he thought was just. But he didn't do it half-cocked. He didn't do it not knowing who he was talking about. He didn't do it without having seen the thing himself. I really respected him for that. That was a way of being spiritually political, pursuing justice in a way that was deeply rooted in his faith and operating the way Jesus had commanded him to. Right? There's a lot of versions of this. I gotta keep going. The second is, though the church must be political when everything's political, or it can't be anything. Literally, if everything's political, the only way the church cannot be political is if it's literally nothing. Do you understand? And so if the church must be itself, the church has to be political when all things are political, or at least it will be seen that way from the outside. But the church absolutely cannot be politicized. Can't be politicized. I would def define politicized as this. Judging everything by how it helps or hurts our political par party or program. If we judge each thing by the political team that we're on, that is its own idolatry. Do you understand? And um, that will destroy us. It will destroy the church. It will destroy our life together as the church. It will destroy our faith. It will lead us to be—we'll think that we're Christians. We'll profess Christian faith, but we'll be idolaters. We'll worship false gods, i.e. the state or something else. And that's bad enough because as Americans, we're already pretty close to idolatrous in our consumerism if we're not there. So we'll have multiple idolatrous gods. It'll be just like Israel, you know? <clears throat> Though the church will have to be political, it cannot be politicized. And listen, there's no simple way to do this. Like, there's no, like, little pointer I can give you. It's like, okay, well, we're not politicized. No, listen. If we allow the church to be politicized, we will go through the same descent into violence— and destruction that everybody goes into if they 
if they act in a politicized way, right? And so you might be like, well, okay, can you get like a literal, super clear definition so that we always know what's political and what's politicized? I don't think so. There was a Supreme Court justice in one of the cases on pornography who said, listen, I don't know if I can give you 100% analytical definition of what pornography is, but I know when I'm looking at it, right? And in some ways, politicization within the church, if you, if we understand the feel of it, we understand the spirit of it, if we understand the dynamic of it, if we, we, you, we can know what it is, right? Let me give a couple examples. I've seen, like, I, I was, one, one time I was walking by a group of, like, five younger people, and they were talking about something that was overtly political in nature. It was, like, about justice in schools or something like that. I can't remember now. And they were not all on the same team, like, in terms of what they thought the proper public policy was. But when one person talked, the other people were listening. Like, listening, listening. Not just, like, listening, waiting for you to stop talking so it could be my turn, but, like, listening. And then when the other person talked after the first person talked, they talked as though they'd actually heard the structure of the argument the other person had actually made. And they were responding to what that person actually said. And by that, I don't mean they found the one thing in the paragraph the person said that they could pull out of context and attack so they could move the thing in their direction. I mean they took the totality of the argument, took the strongest points that the person made, and grappled with those personally with the other person. Right? That's political. But you've also seen Christians discuss things relative to public life where the opposite has happened. That's politicized, right? This last week, um, Gwen Schrader, our, our children's minister who did the announcements, wrote a letter to the editor of the Wisconsin Journal and to the um, Board of Education relative to closing schools. And she's, she's like, we need to not close the schools, right? And she wrote a few paragraphs that they published. Now, here's the thing. You will not find a personal attack in there. You won't, you won't find a—that's just what these people always do. You won't find a—you won't find bigotry. You won't find a personal attack. You won't find anything in there where she can't be friends with those people in the future. You won't find anything alienating, othering. She just said, listen, all the even uber-liberal th- places in our country say the kids should be in school. The kids should be in school. Kicking, like closing precipitously when parents have to go to work and like, this is, this is not good. We need to not do this. We need to open up schools. It should happen. Please do so. No threats. There were no personal attacks. There was a clear argument that you could follow and agree with or disagree with. That is Christian advocacy, because when I'm done arguing with you, you and I have to be neighbors, even if we're enemies. And we need to comport ourselves even when we're fighting for justice in ways in which the enemy, in the end, can be our brother. Which is the basis of the entire American civil rights movement in the 50s. Collaborating without division. Oh, listening, challenging, preaching. This is an important one. So in April, when Marcus Allen came to preach here, um, <clears throat> he's an African-American pastor. He, he made a couple pastoral applications that if you, if you graphed them politically, they'd be a little bit to the left. And um, you know, we have plenty of conservative people in our church. And um, some of them were like, huh, that's, that's an interesting way to put that. Some of them were like, that upsets me that you said that but maybe I'm being a little bit too touchy. Some people were like, I just disagree with that. I'm spitting out those seeds. I don't agree with that application. Some people sent hate emails to his church. (laughs) Okay, which of these applications is not like the other? I mean, which is clearly politicization? Which is your willingness to dehumanize and personally attack another person who's trying to do the work of Christ the best of his understanding and conscience as a brother in Christ, right? It's very clear. You could disagree. You could be like, you can—you don't have to not give people what they're due as an image bearer, especially when they're trying to do the work of God, right? Yeah. Collaborating without division. So this week, I'll bring a check for $56,000 to the faith place. Okay, $26,000 came in already. Um, there's, still, there's still another week you can give to the campaign, but they have, they have more than they need now. Um, Blackhawk Church gave $15,000. another church on the east side— that still has to vote on it, but they're planning on giving 10. Um, the faith place should have like at least $25,000 more than they need for their down payment. Okay. Now, now, here's the thing. We specifically chose to support a predominantly African-American church to do this. If a, if a predominantly white church had come to us and said, we want to buy our own building, it's $800,000, we're having trouble raising the money, would you help us? we probably would have said no. Unless it was a church plant, they were very fledgling, or something like that. We probably would have said no. 
That's political, right? Isn't that racist? Right? And see, the reason as a pastor I'm willing to lead in that direction is because I feel like context matters. I feel like taking into account that the per capita giving at that church is going to be, is going to be about a third of what it is at this church, that they're doing good ministry, all of the signs of spiritual life are there, they just don't have the resources they need to procure this particular thing. And that's because of things that have happened in our country and dynamics that exist right now that, that I have all kinds of personal beliefs about. But I see people doing the work of God, and they have every resource they need besides dollars. And part of the difference of them not having it is for specific cultural, economic, even racialized reasons that I think stink and that I didn't help make and that I haven't fixed, and I probably can't. But to the best of my discernment, I thought God would want me to help them, and us to help them, and we are. And I think that that's good, but in a way, do you see how in a way it's political? And here's the other thing. Do you think, if you're at this church, and if you vote, tend to vote red, do you think that the majority of the people at the church that we're helping in this case are going to vote with you next election? Because they're not, right? And you know that. I remember when we helped another church put a roof on across town, um, one of the prominent members of their church, I don't want to be too specific because I don't want you to— I, the names are not the important thing— um, was making remarks in a sermon about unity, and the person was talking about public life, and they spent about five minutes or so, maybe less than that, kind of lambasting Donald Trump. This is when he was president, right? Just how bad a person he was, just how bad a leader he was, just how terrible he was. Which, an argument can be made for that. But it was a pretty unbalanced argument as a whole. There were lots of people on the left she could have bashed too, and she just didn't do that. She just went one way with it. And, um, this is when we're, we're giving this church, like, a lot of money to help do something, and somebody from the church came and said, did you, did you see that feed where that person said that? And I said, yep, I did. And they were like, what, like, what do you think about that? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't appreciate that. Um, I don't think that it was st state, statesmanlike, but, um, I don't control that person, you know? And then I said to this person, who was hurt, personally hurt by that, I was like, do you want to not support them because that person said that? And he said, no, of course not. Of course I want to support them. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see that? Right? That's what I'm talking about. Politics, not politicized. Right? He had his convictions. He had his beliefs. He even identified personally. He was personally committed to a certain way of putting life together humanly in a political society, and he, he believed it. And it. Maybe he's right. Maybe the other person is totally wrong. But you see, when it came to collaborating for the work of the gospel in the city— he would not allow the dividing walls of hostility to come up in the midst of something that would not have been the main priority of Jesus. Right? Um, you'll see this in Breaking Solidarity in Ranks. There was this situation some years ago, a young African-American na man named Tony Robinson was killed in Madison in inauspicious situations, right? It was just him and the police officer in whatever room they were in. He was shot and killed. He had been struggling with a mental issue, and— there were, it was problematic, but not obviously murder. Like, it was one of those situations, right? And there was, there was a protest, and um, Harold Rayford, African-American pastor friend of mine, was here, and he invited me to come down to the protest as an NAACP observer. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do that. So I went down. We spent the day together. I watched the protest. was there, observed, and all that. Um, and then as the next two weeks played out, there was, there was a, a request to use High Point Church for the funeral, and then that request was retracted, and then it was put back for it, and then it was retracted again, partly because there were a bunch of sub-political groups within that community sort of pulling the family in multiple directions to, like, make it a statement for something. And I, my position was, I know Harold. I trust Harold. He's an important person. I, whatever his judgment is is what I'll go with because I'm not privy to any of this. But I know I trust him. And it's because Harold was always a statesman. He always— put aside his personal things to advocate for his subcommunity that he was advocating for, but always treating his enemy like a brother at the same time. So I trusted him. What happened was they decided to go another way, and some people decided to start a, a rumor in Madison that we didn't want black people to have Tony Robinson's funeral at this church. And, it's, and you know how it is like the lies get out before the truth gets its pants on? And when that happened— um, Harold Rayford had a very important decision to make because he knew that it was completely false. And he also knew that the reason it was being spread was because he didn't play ball on something because he didn't think it was right. And instead of attacking him, they decided to attack me and us, the people. And I'm saying it's a black community. It's a subgroup, a subgroup of a subgroup of a political group, but they were really good at spreading the rumor. 
And so Harold broke rank. And he's like, that is false. High Point Church never did that. They accepted, they accepted invitation twice. They spent hours of staff time preparing. They definitely would have had the funeral at their church. This is completely false. And he worked very hard to rehabilitate our reputation in the African-American church community in particular. And he put his neck out there for me. You understand? That's, that's, that's important stuff. And his character and willingness to break ranks when, when he needed to, when it was the right thing to do, is part of what showed me that we had enough solidarity to work together. We had enough solidarity that we could trust each other. We had enough solidarity that we could do things together as the church of Jesus Christ. Because all, at the end of the day, there were all kinds of political considerations as the church worked together, but he and I were not politicized. All right, let's end with—you guys can take that down. Let me do this. Because um, I want to leave some time for—ask for, um, me anything if, in fact, we're doing that. Um, I realize that what I've said it makes some people really nervous, okay? But here's the thing. There is no safety in just obeying as much of the gospel as we want or feel we can manage. I know that there are reasons why people, people are like, look, I don't want the church politicized. There's, there's lots of reasons for that. It, those are really good reasons, right? We will create rather than break down the dividing walls of hostility. We will pretend that areas where there can be really good disagreement prudentially about what's the best policy or what's the best person to select to do what's just and right, we're going to disagree on that. But that doesn't mean that the things that God says about rejecting idolatry and believing the truth aren't public. It doesn't mean that sin, what sin is and isn't, and how we can repent of it and turn from it, isn't a public statement. It doesn't mean that there aren't basic patterns of justice, giving people what they're due, that are public spiritual truths that we have to proclaim. And as best as we can, apply them to our, per, our present context. Even if we don't get real specific about the exact policies, or the exact politician, or the exact party. It, it's going to take maturity, and it's going to take bravery, and it's going to take humility. But think about this. Isn't that great? Isn't it great that God is setting things up such that we'll have to be mature? Because it turns out human beings, generally speaking, we're too weak and sinful <laughs> to do anything we don't have to do. <laughs> Whenever God has allowed Christians to be in a situation where they could be weak and they could be shallow, Christians tend to be weak and shallow. And when he demands because of the situation that we're in that we deal with the complexity or difficulty, so that we have to grow up in maturity and learn how to love one another. In those cases, we will, or we might, or we could. And I think that's his invitation to us. And in the midst of it, remember, he's always reconciling to himself to those who will come. You don't—we don't have to be afraid that we're going to make mistakes. Because the God who calls us to act justly is the God who atones for our sins. When we fail, when we get it wrong— like, we don't—God doesn't cancel us. He doesn't throw us out. He doesn't try to destroy us. He doesn't try to character assassinate us. He comes to us, and he— He makes another ovation to us for the righteous to live by faith. And another promise that he forgives every sin. And another— another pledge that— The day is coming when the administration of his government will work because every person in it will be just. I, I don't think heaven is going to have some highly complex system of government, friends. What God is doing is, is he's making just citizens to have in a fairly simple government, maybe a place where one won't even be needed, where being a king will be a joy and easy. Because he's of one mind with his subjects, and of one heart, and of one life. And we are called to repent and believe, to be saved. No one can be saved. There is no assurance of salvation in the Bible without repentance and faith under the king, because otherwise we will be idolaters. But he calls us to believe the gospel of the cross, the good news of the cross, so that we can learn to walk in the gospel of the kingdom the good news that his life is breaking in through the indwelling of the Spirit and how we can live in this life with our neighbors to bring redemption and to take dominion in the creation that he's given us.
Lord, I feel like that this, speaking about this is a web with all kinds of connected parts, and I've picked and chosen my way through a little bit to try to clarify something key. And I pray that at this church, we would be able to accept as believers that faith is public. We have to love one another. We have to give each other what they're due. We have to live in relationships with other groups of people, and those are by nature social, and they have to do with policies and authorities, and they're by nature in some sense political. And you speak into all of the world, including things done in governments and by governments. And your speech, though it's spiritual, like John the Baptist, it is received as political. And I pray that you give us the courage to be political in that sense, in, in those senses in which you are, but also to receive that you didn't strive for power. You didn't try to choke us into submission. You called us in liberty to pursue justice, and that you've called us to forgiveness and to make peace with our enemies rather than to use the violence of our administrations to crush our enemies. Help us to be people who care about the liberty of faith and the justice of faith. And help it to come from a humilius that comes from being forgiven by you in the gospel of the cross that you, the king, forgives his enemies and draws us to live by faith in what you call righteousness and help us to live amidst our neighbors, to live amidst our enemies, to live amidst our complex difficulties, to live even in something as complicated as a coast-to-coast, 350 million person democracy. Justly, in righteousness, and in faith. And help it to be in such a way as that it draws people to the gospel of the cross because the citizenship they see as the most worthy is citizenship in heaven. The government leader they see as they most want to live under his rule is Jesus, the anointed Christ. And so that we really can be the salt and light the world needs. In Jesus' name.